Great. Thanks very much, Sue. We'll do keep that open. We're going to look at that a few, few minutes together now. Uh, and uh, I just realised I ought to have said, as I prayed for you getting married, I should, should have said the, the important line, if anyone knows any reason why these persons may not marry. <laughs> so it's not too late if you do know a reason, but obviously we're praying for your sakes so that no one's going to object. Um, so I've now done that. But marriage actually is a, is a wonderful picture, isn't it, of, of the oneness and the unity of... Uh, not just the couple in the marriage, but of Christ, ultimately with his people, with the church. So uh, it is actually a nice background idea for that theme this morning, the theme of oneness in our reading. Um, And and I I do have one of the best jobs, I think, in the world, because in in my role, um, I get to uh, explore faith with people, think about the really big questions of of life and of God and so on. Um, I get to see people come to faith. I get to um, work with people and, and share and teach the Bible and grow in my own faith as I do that, and I get to be there at some of the most exciting, like, you know, marriages, some of the most exciting moments of life, and some are actually the most poignant and, and tragic moments of life as well. Uh, but you don't have to be in church for very long to realise that we're not always completely one, united with each other. Um, you know, you, a believer falls out with someone else and they have trouble forgiving each other, perhaps for a very long time. Um, or someone appears to start very strongly, uh, enthusiastic about church, but then maybe because of of loves for other things in the world, um, they drift away. And they maybe lose their faith. Um, But nonetheless, with all of our faults, with all the kind of disappointment of what church feels like, Paul in Ephesians has a very high understanding of the church. He said earlier in chapter 2 that we're a, um, a new humanity, all brought together with this now unique bond that we share Christ with each other, whatever our background, whatever um, age or ethnicity or whatever we are. We're a a dwelling, he says, in chapter 2, in which God lives by his spirit, no less than a home for God himself. So as we finish this little series, look at the theme of welcome um, in our church here, I've got three questions um, from Ephesians chapter 4. As we think about oneness or unity... Where does oneness begin? How does oneness grow? And then, why does oneness matter? Where does it begin? How does it grow? Why does it matter? And we spend most of the time, actually, on that second one. um, The how does unity, oneness, grow? But firstly, briefly, where does oneness begin? you look at those first six verses there, the writer's been telling us, Paul's been telling us in the first three chapters, Christ's done everything that we need to save us and bring us together in him. And then in verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, he says that that unity, that oneness we have in him begins not with us, we don't create it, it is a gift of God himself. He says there's one body, one hope, one Lord, Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and in all and through all. So, oneness, unity, simply comes to us from God. It's a gift from him. He's made us this way in Christ. And it's right that we work at unity, that we do forgive each other, that we do overlook minor differences between us. Um, This year is the 70th anniversary of the World Council of Churches, that was set up particularly uh, to do with with global church unity. 
But oneness, unity begins with God. It is a gift. So, to be really clear, we don't earn the right to be children of the same Heavenly Father, the sort of language Paul's using here, believers in the same Lord, sharing in the same Spirit. We are given that privilege as a gift. Of course, we aren't fully there yet, as I've already said. Christians, uh, we do fall out. We do have trouble forgiving other people and so on. Uh, we have differences. The, um, the church in this country and globally is famously in you know, lots of denominations. But the invisible unity, the spiritual unity we have in Christ already as a gift um, is not the same thing as the visible unity or sometimes disunity, sadly, of Christ's followers. So that's why Paul does make a passionate appeal in the first three verses there. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You've had this extraordinary gift. Live up to it. Love each other. Be humble, be gentle, be patient. Bear with each other in love. Then he says, make every effort. It's a strong word there in the original. Make every effort. Fight for this to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So in peace, as peace with our, as our kind of rule, our privilege, we are to keep unity. We don't create it, we do keep it. It begins as a gift. Secondly then, now here's the, the, the big one this morning. How does oneness grow? How do I keep growing as a member of a church, whether I've just joined or if I've been here for many years? Well, The growth of the church does depend upon us, the members. We'll come back to that. But just as unity begins in God, so does growth, according to this passage. Verse 7, Paul says, To each one, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. The growth of the church comes from the grace of God given through the ascended, reigning Christ. Now, if you notice when it was read by Sue, verses 8 and 9 are quite difficult verses. Um, So we're just going to attempt a a short summary now of what they're about. But they do explain, I think, what this grace is that Christ's given and when he gave it. So verse 8 says, He ascended, Christ ascended on high, took many captives and gave gifts to his people. That's a quote from Psalm 68. You can look it up later, Psalm 68. I think the footnotes tell you. And that psalm shows a captured people giving gifts to their conquering king. You see what the writer's done here? He slightly changed it, reversed it. It's now the conquering king, having ascended in victory, who gives gifts to his people. There seems to be a, a deliberate change of sense there. So, you know, what are these gifts? When did he give them? What's this grace that he's talking about? Well, verse 9 says, when, what does he ascended mean? What does Christ ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. Now, ascension, that's clearly the resurrection and the return of Christ to heaven, where he reigns in glory. But what's descended? Now, it's, a, it's maybe a small point, but it could mean the obvious when he came to earth as a child at Christmas and lived on earth. It could mean that. But it could also mean, it fits the context better, that having risen and ascended after Easter, 
he has then descended among us, how? Through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us at Pentecost. So it could all be here that that the writer is saying in both verses, and I think I've put a summary on the screen of what this, this is maybe saying, Jesus Christ, King Jesus, came down at Pentecost through his Spirit to give gifts to us by which he will grow us towards maturity. So those verses are difficult, but I think that's a summary. Okay? So that brings us on to the, the kind of more the nuts and bolts of this. Um, how does this happen? What is this grace that verse 7 says Christ gave? Well, grace, it's the word gift in the original. We think of spiritual gifts, if we, if we know the Bible a little bit, as special abilities that Christ has given through the Holy Spirit for us to serve the body of Christ with. Interestingly here, though, what does Paul say? He says he's given gifts to his people, then he goes on to describe them, and we find they're not here abilities he's given, they are people. In fact, there are five different kinds of person, functions or roles within the church. Christ has given, he says, apostles. Um, That's the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They gave us the New Testament. Prophets. Probably this means here the Old Testament prophets who gave us the scriptures of the Old, the First Testament. Then he says evangelists. Literally it means good newsers, gospelers, good news people. Um, People that share the good news of Jesus, the story of Jesus, both with those outside the church and, and searching and those inside the church that we might grow. Then he says, fourthly, pastors. Uh, that's the shepherd's word. People that lead God's people to feed and guide us, uh, especially maybe when we're going through trials or doubting or confused. And then teachers, lastly, um, those who help believers to understand the scriptures, the Bible, the gospel, and to apply it, to live it today. Now, I think it's pretty clear that prophets, apostles, they did their work um, and they've left us with the Bible, with the scriptures. They've left us the, um, the core, the heart, the truth of the gospel. That means the other three ministries, evangelists, pastors, teachers, are the three that continue in the church today. And those roles, there's probably some overlap between them. Some think pastors, teachers is all one role. I suspect they're three slightly different ones. Now, they obviously connect, don't they, with the roles of a church minister today, someone that's ordained, like myself. But equally, they connect with the role of our lay preachers, our lay readers, or with youth ministers or children's ministers. But I want to say, well, what about people that lead a small group? Or a discover group, where people are exploring the gospel, looking for faith. Or children's leaders. And I could extend that list a long way, couldn't I? Surely they also must be in some way evangelists or pastors or teachers or a combination of those, mustn't they? That means actually lots of us have one of these key five, or in our case today, three roles. So the point is this, I'm just trying to summarise it here in one sentence. Um, 
Of all the roles Christ gives to all his people, these five gospel ministries, of which three continue today, are primary, not because I or one of these is any more important than anyone else, we're all equal in Christ, but because they're gospel ministries and it's the gospel that grows the church. Does that make sense? These are really important ministries for those of us that have been entrusted with them or will be entrusted with them. So, now the the how. The gospel grows the church. How do these three gospel ministries, alongside the Bible itself, do that? Well, in the next verse, Paul says, at verse 12, three things, three ways in which evangelists, pastors, and teachers are helping us. He says, first of all, they're coaches. They are to equip, see that phrase, verse 12, equip God's people. So it's like Gareth Southgate, dare I mention football, ahead of Tuesday. It's like Gareth Southgate, isn't it, as he's coaching the England team, giving them skills and tricks and ideas to help them to be a more effective team. That's the image here. Um, A pastor, a teacher, we are equipping people to know and to follow Christ, to know God's love in their lives. So as we open up the scriptures, like now, this morning, we're giving each other tools to serve Christ at work uh, or maybe to learn how to teach the Bible to someone else at church or how to explain to someone at work who Jesus is to you. Equipping, coaching. Secondly, waiters. Um, Works of service. To do works of service is the second phrase. Now, this could mean all of us, whether we're one of these three ministries or not. We all do works of service, and we do. But probably here, Paul means particularly these three roles are doing works of service. It probably should be a comma after God's people there. So it's to equip God's people, comma, for works of service, comma. How are these three people, pastors, teachers, evangelists, how are we doing works of service? Well, in Acts, um, the apostles there say they want to give themselves to serving the word, the Bible, the scriptures, the gospel. And what they mean is we want to be like waiters carrying the gospel message of Jesus to people that need to hear it. And that's probably the picture here. He's saying these three groups of people, they are like waiters nourishing God's people and others with the news of Jesus, with the scriptures. That's why the scriptures are so important, is it, in our services, in our children's groups, in our discover groups, and so on. So works of service, waiters serving up the word of God. And then third image, bodybuilders. Uh, Now, as you can probably see, um, the physical version of bodybuilders is not something I know much about. That's apparent this morning, probably. Um, But that's not what Paul means here. To build up the body of Christ, it's spiritual building of God's people, the body of Christ, the organism in which he lives. Christ gave the church people to teach the word so the body of Christ can be built. And I'm sure you've seen this, if you've been in church at all before, When the good news of Jesus is taught by gospel workers, in whatever setting or context, you see eyes brighten, don't you? You see hope strengthening. You see courage getting bigger. You see um, things like natural laziness or impatience or unforgiveness beginning to evaporate. That's 
the word of God, doing the work of God, building the people of God. And then verse 13, did you see there the ultimate goal? All those kind of three things that they do. This is for this big goal, verse 13, until we all reach, here's our goal, unity, oneness in the faith. Isn't that a wonderful thing if Christians one day we will be one in the faith? And of the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, grown up. Oneness is a gift from God. It needs us to protect it, but it's also a goal one day to be attained as we grow towards it. And we don't gain oneness, as we've seen, by by human means, by committees. We gain it by the growth in the message, the gospel of Jesus. Karen, I've got a friend um, who's not famous as a Christian leader. He doesn't write books. He doesn't appear on conference platforms. But it's through his patient gospel teaching um, of myself, of Carol, of others, when we were way back as students that we really end up here today doing what we're doing. Um, And I think there are probably dozens of others who could say the same thing about the way that he pastored and taught and evangelized, shared the gospel with them. And he's still going strong, he's still pastoring a church and again, I'm sure hundreds are still being nourished by his just faithful ministry. And he says, in recent years, it's been very fashionable, and it's been a good recovery, to talk about how we are all ministers of the gospel. Our title this morning reminds us of that. Ministers, not just me, it's the people. We all are ministers. That's been a good recovery, I think, of that emphasis. But, Paul says, we must value, first of all, the word ministry. Because that's what grows the church when it's faithfully and lovingly done. So I wonder if you pray each week for those who are preaching here the next Sunday. It's a really great thing. I rely upon that when I'm preaching. I wonder if you are praying not just for for me, for others, but praying for more to be raised up in the church here, to be gospel workers amongst our children, our young people, our students, to go from here elsewhere to do that. And even if you feel you personally are not gifted as an evangelist or a pastor or a teacher, it seems to say that we won't all be gifted that way. Who could you just read the Bible with yourself? Because we can all do that. Just say to someone, would you like to read the Bible with me? Um, Get together over a coffee every couple of weeks. Just spend no more than an hour, um, quarter an hour to catch up, maybe up to half an hour just to read the passage and see what you learn, and then a little bit of time at the end to pray. Very simple. Couldn't you do that? with someone. Because oneness begins with the gift of God, it grows, though, to the work of the gospel of God in the people of God. That's the big one. Oneness grows through the work of the gospel. Lastly, and a little bit more briefly, why does oneness matter? Well, verse 14, um, Paul says one reason it matters He says, when we do reach that goal of oneness and maturity, we will no longer be infants, babies. So, obvious image, isn't it? It's a good image. We are born as Christians into new life in Christ, but we start out as babies. And if we remain so, we'll always be vulnerable, like a tiny child, um, helpless without the care of others. So, oneness is something that can be disrupted. We are vulnerable 
unless we seek to grow as well. Or, to put it another way, as Paul does in another image, he says there are waves that toss us about, like like a, a piece of jetsam floating in the North Sea, waves that toss us about. There are winds that drive us with no control over our direction. We're like a rudderless boat in a storm. I don't remember, a few years ago, there were some tourists sailing off Indonesia. Uh, and their engine and their rudder were both broken by a storm that hit them. And they were left literally drifting, um, completely at the mercy of the currents and the winds and the waves. Um, until one of the women on board managed to call her boyfriend, uh, this is, remember, in the Pacific Ocean, back in Cornwall... And he contacted the Coast Guard in Australia, who contacted Indonesia and Bali, and rescues were sent for them. But that's how vulnerable we are, Paul's saying, to the winds and the waves of the world around us. We'll come back to what he means by that. Because third, he says, there are also wily people, tricksters, it's the kind of idea here, um, those who are out to trick us. The word is the word used of dice players, who apparently in the ancient world were, were regarded as uniformly not to be trusted, out to trick you. Perhaps, you know, card sharps, we'd probably say. And he's saying that they're false ideas. The false ideas of our culture, the, the winds and the waves around us, are there trying to confuse us in our faith, to get us confused about Jesus or about God or about the scriptures, and therefore to put us off course to stop us growing towards our destiny, our oneness. And the kind of things, I suppose, that we might think of today, um, the kind of phrases people will say to us, um, and this may be even things that you yourself would say you believe, things like, well, Jesus, he was a great example, um, but then so was Moses, so was Muhammad. Um, He wasn't divine. Or the Bible... It's got some nice bits in it, but it's not an inspired book. It's just a human book. Or freedom. Freedom, a big thing in our culture, isn't it? Freedom means, people say, just being able to do what you think is right, whatever it is. And Paul says, we have no way to interrogate those ideas, to question them. We're vulnerable to them unless we are growing up in the gospel. That's our protection. That's why we need these gospel ministries that we just looked at. Because they will grow us and make us strong to tell the true from the fake, the healthy from the unhealthy. So sharing truth with each other. What Paul goes on to say in verse 15 is speaking the truth in love. That's the remedy, that's the how, that's the protection against winds and waves and wily people. Speak the truth to each other. Just share the gospel. Look at the scriptures together. Remind each other of them. And we need to do it gently, he says, in love. Don't bash people with this stuff. That's not going to help people. It's not truth without love. It's not love without truth. It's truth and love. But the truth grows the church of God. And verse 16, he finishes with a... It's a kind of a medical picture, isn't it? An anatomical picture about the body of Christ. He says, there are ligaments that unite and join together. The word really is there, that supply the parts, like blood vessels really. And there are the other parts 
that the ligaments hold together and supply. So you've got your ligaments and you've got your other parts, you know, the, the muscles, the tissues and so on, the skin, the hair. And Paul is probably saying here again that the ministers we've looked at earlier, they're the ligaments, they unite us by the gospel and they supply us, they feed us with the gospel. But we're all the parts, we need the ligaments, but the whole point of the body is for the parts to do their stuff. The muscles need to move, the eyes need to see. Ligaments are vital, we fall apart without that, we starve without the gospel, but, he says, the body grows as each does its part. That's where all of us here this morning, if we follow Christ, or are thinking about doing so, that's where we come in. Each plays its part. Every member of the body is to pray for others, to give time or uh, resources in other ways, to serve others, to love, to forgive, um, to be there in time of need, to encourage, so that the weak are strengthened, faith grows, the body of Christ grows up towards unity. So just two questions, really, to finish with for us. Quick questions. Who's helping you at the moment, to grow towards maturity in Christ? Is someone helping you? Is it a friend, someone in your small group, someone in the church family here, perhaps someone you're married to? You need, you and I need someone to help us to keep growing. We need ligaments to unite us and feed us. Who's, as it were, training, equipping you, coaching you to follow Christ? Please find someone. And secondly, who are you training? Who are you training to grow, to play their part? Who are you encouraging, helping to be equipped to serve the body of Christ here? To follow Christ at work, perhaps? Okay, one of our uh, parts of our church vision this year is to, to be in sort of one-to-one places. We can just be reading the Bible with someone one-to-one. I've mentioned it already this morning, haven't I? But who could you be training and equipping in that sort of way? It's so simple, but so powerful, because the gospel is so simple and so powerful. And you see, I personally, as a minister, I can only do it with a small number of people. Maybe half a dozen, at most a dozen people. But what if ten of us were doing this? So what if a hundred of us were doing this kind of thing? How could Christ grow his people then? You see, Christ, as I finish, he's given us unity to be his people. He's given us the goal of that unity to be achieved one day. But the good news is that in the gospel and in his ministers, the gospel workers of the church, he's also given us the means to reach that goal. He's not said, go and do the impossible. He said, go and become this, and I'm going to give you the way to do it. By his grace, in faith, we will one day, this is the promise here, we will one day be fully mature, fully united, fully knowing Christ, fully grown as his body, fully one with him, fully complete in him, and fully united to him. What a picture that is for us. Let's pray. In a moment, Margaret's going to continue um, in prayer to lead us with our intercessions. First, I'll just lead us in a short prayer for ourselves as we reflect on the love of God to his people, 
on the gift of Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, some of us this morning um, are grateful to you simply for many years, perhaps, of your faithful nourishing of us in life and hope and faith. And we ask that you'll continue to grow us in love as we seek to grow others through the power of your gospel message. Others here are perhaps new to faith, perhaps searching, perhaps sceptical. We pray that for each of us, you'll help us to hear as you speak, to be those that receive um, the truth and the good news that only can come from you. And may we all know together the gift of unity and oneness, and may we look to and long for that day when we are grown fully as your people and united fully to you. In Jesus' name, amen.